Hello and welcome to A Year with the Beatles, a limited series of 12 podcasts exploring virtually every studio album by the Beatles month by month. My name is Graham Burke. On our sixth episode, we'll talk about Rubber Soul and witness the Beatles on the ascendance of the pop scene and talk about UK versus US album track listings. It doesn't get any nerdier than this. Plus, we're trying to hear the band over the sound of the crowd at one of their best-known live gigs, so stick around. As with every month, here to help me through this marathon run through the Beatles discography is Rob Jones, a music critic and writer of the music blog The Delete Men. Are you okay this time, Rob? I'm doing fine, Graham, as always. Excellent. And joining us this month is Petra Mayer, an editor with NPR Books. Thanks for coming on, Petra. Sure, my pleasure. Well, we're halfway through the year, so I'm sick of doing a recap. There's 12 studio albums by the Beatles, there's 12 months in a year, and we're done. So with that item off the checklist, let's talk about this month's selection, Rubber Soul, which was released on the 3rd of December, 1965. So here's everything you need to know about Rubber Soul in two minutes, more or less. Now, Rob. Oh, yes. Hello. 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 I'm here. I'm here. I, I'm glad to hear that. All right. I, I want you to cast your mind back to July 1984. 
Oh, dear. That's okay. So we were hanging out at your dad's apartment, and yeah. we were talking about the Beatles, and you yeah. got out this album, and you played it on your dad's record player. Uh-huh. And we listened to it multiple times, and that's how I came to love the Beatles. I Do you see. remember this? I, I don't, but I, apparently I have this thing where I introduce you to things, and then you take off with them. So uh, that's just I, I just add adding one more thing to the list, I guess. It and is leave true. me in the dust as well. I'm a, I, it is true. <laughs> it is true. Doctor Who, the Beatles. Yes. Um. Oh, you have a lot like, to answer for, buddy. I know. I know. Jeez. What can I say? But I wanted to bring up something you said back when we were teenagers. A few months after I had listened to the entire Beatles oeuvre, as it were, I think I said that I loved Rubber Soul because it was when the Beatles moved away from being a rock and roll sound to something else. And you said, yeah, they became more of a pop group. Now, I don't want to put you on the spot for something you said as a 16-year-old, but (laughs) do you you think that's the... (laughs) Why not? (laughs) (laughs) Because we're old friends and we can. Uh, Do you think that holds true 30 years later? Well, you know, uh, dear 16-year-old me, uh, I'm not sure in 1965 whether that distinction was, you know, was applicable. You know, because back then, rock music was pop music. uh, And so it would be very hard to kind of separate those those two things at at this point in time. I will say um, that by Rubber Soul, uh, they were on a completely different level, even from uh, Help. They, uh, they just went from, uh, from one level to another. There was an incredible maturity spike uh, in their songwriting and in, and in their approach just to making records. And I think uh, at this point in their, in their career, this is the best sounding Beatles record to date. Like it sounds sort of substantial, not not that the other records don't sound substantial, but this is substantial on a different level entirely. So I don't know if that answers your question. It probably doesn't. But um, can I actually can I stick something? Oh, in here? oh, oh the, by all means. I think uh, not to make the obvious corny joke, but this is when they became a pot group because this is the record where you hear them start smoking weed. And honestly, I think it does have an influence on their songwriting. <laughs> this is where they get more musically complex. This is where they start to tip. This is the transition point, right? This is where they tip over mm. from the Red Album to the Blue Album, you know? Yeah. From what we think mm. of as early Beatles, from the group that still had one foot in Hamburg to the group that was going to make Sgt. Peppers a few years later. I, I guess my question is, is what have they become? Because they're not doing heavy drums and bass and, no. and heavy guitars now, except yeah. for maybe Drive My Car. So what is it that makes it different? They, uh, they want to make an album that is an album that is an artistic statement and not just an extension of uh, their songwriting craft or their, their live act. They, they want to make an album uh, as a self-contained unit that sort of stands on its own. I think this is the first album where they really try and they're really conscious of that. Um, there's hints of that all the way along, of course, as we've, as we've discussed. But I think uh, with Rubber Soul, it was really, really deliberate. Uh, and they wanted to put in as much of themselves into this album as possible and then have it stand on its own. So I think that's what the difference is at this point in time. So, Petra, what is it about the sound of the album that appeals to you? Well, with the Beatles, I'm I'm an early Beatles girl, which uh, I guess people who know me think is sort of weird. But um, I'm very much like sort of like I said, Hamburger Beatles. And there's something that is so okay. I'm about to get super pretentious, so you know, feel free to make all the fun of me. But there's a <laughs> Japanese concept, the name of which I cannot remember about. Uh, 
the concept is something that is beautiful because it is transient, right? Something, something that, that has a beauty that's enhanced by your knowledge that it's going to end soon. And that's how I feel about the early Beatles. They mm. were so sweet and so shining and so transcendent in a, in a weird, naive, innocent, I mean, not innocent. I mean, they were, you know, they were a bar band, but like, there's something so weirdly pure and so transient about early Beatles and you feel it start to darken and get more complex on this yeah. album. But I think it's what Rob said. This is the album where they begin to see the album as an art form. It strikes me as an unplugged album, largely. I mean, even when an electric guitar is used, it's it's much different in its intent. It's like yeah. in Think for Yourself or In My Life. It's sort of flavoring, if you mm. will. It doesn't. It doesn't feel like it. So it's it's even using the sort of instruments you kind of accept, you kind of you know accept as part of their sort of you know rock and roll R and B act, but sort of using it in a completely different way. There's also a sense of uh, um, sort of international feel on this album as well. I think, which is which really adds to it. I'm not just talking about the the sitar, which I'm sure we'll talk about, um, but. Uh, just little flavorings of you know the world, like in Michelle, there's that sort of French feel to it, and uh, and in Girl, there's this you know they go right to eat the, they go right to Greece, you know, on that one with all the sort of sounds like bazookis on it or something like that, you know what I mean? Uh, and it it has a kind of world folk kind of feel to it. I I feel in in terms of in terms of its instrumentation, I think the biggest thing for me on this album is uh, they uh, their harmonies. Uh, so this good. is my, this is my, yeah, is. this is my favorite album for Beatles singing, I think. Um, I mean, they were always really striking with harmonies that we talked about on, you know, Beatles for sale about, you know, like, I don't want to spoil the party with all that Everly Brothers type stuff here. It's like that, but also Beach Boys and just, and they just take that three part harmony stuff and then they just ramp that up to like, they double down on it. And it's, that's my favorite part of in terms of the sound of the album that you're asking about, that for me is, is what really stands out. So what were the tracks that excited people this time? We're going to argue about track ordering later because, well, my two of my two favorite, one of them is only on the American version, which is I've just seen a face, which is probably my second favorite Beatles song of all time. Um, and of course I grew up, you know, playing my parents old dusty Beatles records from the sixties. So they had the American version of rubber soul. And that's the one I know that starts with I've Just Seen a Face. And then the, of course, the other one, of course, is Norwegian Wood, which I can remember. I think actually maybe this might have be the first LP I have a distinct memory of listening to when I was about, I had to be four. I think I was four. And I made up a dance on the living room rug to Norwegian Wood because I was fascinated by the sound <laughs> of the sitar. And I remember telling my mom, look, 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 I'm, I'm doing a ballet dance. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's nice. That's I like that. <laughs> so yeah you know we can argue about the various merits and, and in uh, of the track orderings and we probably will later but um yeah i've just seen a face god damn i love that song this being one of my favorite beatles albums period um it's really hard to choose but as i mentioned uh if i needed someone that chiming uh 12 string electric guitar Which is sort of a payback because the birds heard Harrison play, you know, Hard Day's Night, and then they started a band, and then they went all in with the twelve-string stuff. And then Harrison heard that and wrote 
if I needed someone. So it's kind of an interesting uh, kind of turnaround there. And plus that riff is just so, you know, like it just draws you right in and it locks in with the melody. Probably one of the one of his best ever riffs. And, <clears throat> and another one, uh, which is one of those songs like you think, oh yeah, that one's on there. But it's, it's becoming one of my favorites. And that is uh, The Word, I, again. Again, for all those harmonies, the, the harmony, they just, they just layer it and layer it. It's so great. Just, I love the, the so sound of the Beatles singing together. It's so great. I'm quite, I'm quite partial to, I'm looking through you. I don't know why, but it just, it, it just is such a, it's such a bouncy little song. And, and Paul, it, and, and, and I just, it, it really just has a great hook to it. Um, it's one of those ones I really like, but the one I think I love the most is in my life. Oh yeah. Uh, I don't know. How do I not even say that? Of course. <laughs> it's one of those songs that I just, I, I, I had an instant connection to it when I was 14 years old. Um, it's such a simple lyric, and I think it's, it's, it's just so honest. There are places I remember It's so honest it doesn't even rhyme for large chunks of it. It just it's just it's just such a simple melody and then you have that gorgeous piano solo by George Martin in the middle of it. He used yeah. all the trickery in the world to actually create because he because he couldn't actually play that fast, so he played it slow in a lower key and then, and then sped it up. But uh it, that's just it was just so so beautiful. The song makes me cry almost, you know, uh, you know, when I haven't listened to it for long periods of time and I listen to it again. It just because it's just it just sort of expresses us a, a, a wonderful sentiment just very simply. I'm just embarrassed that I didn't think to say that one when you asked about favorite tracks. It's one of those, that song uh, in my life uh, is is one of the prime examples of what I was talking about earlier in terms of them them having a huge maturity spike. Like you know, you couldn't imagine John Lennon even writing a song like that even a year before. You know, so it's it's one of those things where he'd been sort of playing at talking about himself and his own feelings in his songs a little bit with help certainly uh and a few others on a hard day's night um but this one he kind of goes you know what let's i'm just gonna write this and it just it just feels like he he broke through to to some other other plane with that one and i i think that's the thing that, that i love about that song the most I kind of feel that Norwegian Wood should get highlighted because it's the first Beatles song, maybe even the first pop song, to use to use a sitar. Guess Rob, how did they pull it off? Harrison, for I mean, for the his entire career by this point, was a pro at just adding little touches to songs, right? You know, like uh, "And I Love Her." Ding, 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 ding. Apparently, Paul McCartney didn't come up with that. That was Harrison. Um, so, huh. so uh, uh, you know, the, the sitar was just another extension of that. course that 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 opened up a world of possibilities for other musicians uh, brian jones would play uh, sitar on 
on a paint of black, which came out the next year. The uh, the birds had been listening to Indian music, and uh, they were friends with Harrison. I imagine some uh, cross pollination happened there in terms of uh, hey, I found this tape, want to hear it, and and you know that that type of stuff was beginning to happen at this point too, like peers beginning to share ideas to create something that they all could kind of build something on. Uh, and I think nor- the, the sitar part on Norwegian wood is a really good example of that. Here's the important question. Do you really think he burned down her apartment? <laughs> that, that is, I, I, I didn't, I, I, Paul says yes, but like. yeah, on, on a lot of, on a lot of, uh, of the songs on this, you know, like a, there's a lot of weird, dark stuff that happens there. Uh, on, I always interpreted that as he started a fire, like in the fireplace. Yeah, that's like, how I interpreted only, it. It was only later on that that uh, you know that this other interpretation came out, like he burned down the house. You know, uh, apparently Norwegian wood was a, uh, a reference to an interior design trend that was happening in the sort of mid '60s, where everybody was having this sort of Scandinavian wood pine types. furniture, yeah, yeah, that type of stuff. So you know, I think that line is probably there just to say you know bollocks to all that. Basically, I think is what he was saying. <laughs> But whether he literally burned it down, I don't know. But I, and regardless, I think the lyrics are perfect for a song with a sitar because, because you know, it's a song about someone having a really strange encounter. Like, nothing is quite right in that song all the way through. And, and, and the sitar makes, it, makes, makes that dynamic even, even more prevalent, to, to my mind. Yeah. I read a really yeah. interesting article somewhere where, and I can't remember where this was, about how this album, um, one of the changes on this album is that the women that they're singing about, singing about start to have their own interior lives. Like the woman in Drive My Car, like she wants to be a star, she's hiring him in this, you know, she has to get up to go to work in the morning, she leaves him alone there. There are yeah. these like interesting characters that are starting to appear in their songwriting. I guess which perhaps might be an indication of the maturity you were talking about. Yeah, there's there become subjects and not objects. We go from the sort of object kind of love interests of say even the songs in Help, women who got to work in the morning and and have the clear narrative of this is that he thinks he's pulled and instead she basically says, "Sorry, I got to go to work." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's kind it's 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 an interesting kind of play. And I think, too, that there's a lot of tension there and there's a lot of resentment as well, even in, like, You Won't See Me. Like, how dare oh, yeah. you have your own life? You know, I, I'm, I'm, your, I'm your boyfriend, so maybe you should spend <laughs> more time with me or something, you know? And there's, there's a bit of sort of tension w- with that. So there's, there's that, that double-sided thing, you know, the women that have their, their, their own lives and their own thoughts. But on some songs, yeah. you know, that's like a resented and the same is true on I'm Looking Through You. Uh, you know, it, it's, you're not the same. You know, why, tell me, why did you not treat me right? It's, it's this kind of, you know, vague resentment. Which, Itchy Paul is so delightful. Yes, yes, it is in a way. <laughs> no, not almost an entitlement. An actual <laughs> yeah. entitlement. Yes, an actual. But it does bring up an interesting question. Uh, and for this, I want to use a clip from a 90s sitcom featuring that well-known cultural critic, Roseanne Connor. Remember they had that song, Run For Your Life, though? Remember that song, Run For Your Life, the Beatles? It goes, uh, he'd rather see her dead than to be with another man. That's all them wife beaters need is an anthem. As much as I love this album, I think it's a masterpiece, I think we'd be doing a disservice by ignoring the fact that several of the songs, charitably and with considerable understatement, make me feel ooky inside. Um, it really is very disturbing, some of the attitudes in it. I guess my broader question is, how do we 
how do you approach that today and the attitudes towards women that are kind of cruel and sometimes even violent? Well, you know, honestly, it's like you approach it the same way you approach other, and I hate this word, but other problematic media, right? It is a product of its time. And we can certainly be made uncomfortable by it. I am. I know that song squicks me, but there's something so performative about it. Like, it's it's like a little boy putting on a leather jacket. <laughs> like, oh, I'm such a badass! Yeah, There's yeah. something not sincere about it, to be perfectly honest. I don't know that that makes it any less squicky, because those lyrics in our modern context are gross and disturbing. But I have a hard time taking it seriously. <clears throat> I, I think, too, it's important to note that uh, that that line, I'd rather see a dead little girl than to be with another man, is uh, actually a quote from uh, Elvis Presley's Baby Left Playhouse, which is not to say that, you know, it still shouldn't make people feel ooky, because uh, that's just another song to feel ooky about, I guess. But it's that sort of rock and roll badassery, I think, is what he was going after. Um, but the problem here is that, you know, there were stories of Lennon's uh, you know, domestic activities, which, you know, were less than you know, cool, shall we say. That is very true, very true. Yeah, it's true. When I was writing the questions, I wanted to say with Lennon's darker tendencies, but then I thought, well, two albums later, we're getting Paul McCartney saying, I used to be cruel by women and beat her and kept her apart from the things we love. So (laughs) I don't think it's, it doesn't seem to be just limited to the brooding guy. I was going to say that, you know, in talking about uh, uh, Backbeat, you know, in our last episode, uh, we talked about, uh, you know, that movie being about men in their 20s and trying to figure out what relationships mean and things like that. And I I think a lot of the time in this record particularly, we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing, you know, guys growing up and the the women that they're with are growing up too and they're growing apart, you know, and we're seeing a lot of frustration there. And we're seeing men who don't have the tools to really understand what that means during a time where things were beginning to change, you know, and it was very confusing for a lot of people. And I think that that's probably what is being reflected here in, in a lot of these songs, not just Run For Your Life, but a lot of these songs, where the guys just don't have the vocabulary to express what's happening. And uh, I think there's a lot of that to be found here. It's one of those songs that creates this kind of dissonance into the sort of narrative I have in my head about the Beatles, which is that they're, it's music that appeals to me even 50 years later because it's timeless and it's great. And then all of a sudden you suddenly go, yeah, this is also written in the in the era of Mad Men. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And, and I think a lot of art does that. A lot of art is culturally bound made in a particular era and stuff like that and we would like to believe that it is somehow greater than the era it is in but actually it's not it's bound in it i think too that it's important to well it can be useful shall we say to apply the uh, unreliable narrator filter to a lot of these types of things uh, and to appreciate it on that level but having said that it's really uh, run for your life is a really hard one to get around and i think to his credit, when Lennon was asked about it in his uh, 1980 uh, interview, the famous 1980 interview, um, where they they sort of rhymed off a bunch of his songs and he sort of gave you know one-line answers to it, he said that, yeah, this is just a throwaway. I don't even like that song or something. He, he said something like that. So it's, you know, maybe even he at that time thought, yeah, that, that was, uh, that was a, a kind of a snapshot of who I was then, which, you know, was before I met Yoko and before... I figured out, you know, what relationships between men and women actually are really about. Uh, and so, you know, it's just kind of a, an embarrassment to him at that point. I would also want to go back to what Graham said about thinking the Beatles were timeless. And to a certain extent, this is a tautology. But, like, 
we think of them as timeless because the timeless stuff is what's come down to us. I mean, this is also the band that wrote, you know, my name, look up the number. Like not yeah. everything they did was great. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They hacked around just like any other band. It's that's true. That's yeah. true. And I, I also, I do, I don't want to f- seem like I come off as dismissive of John Lennon's very real domestic issues. Like there, there was a darkness in him and it, it, you see it in this song and it does give an added and very uncomfortable context to it. But I also, it, it's just for me, it's a product. It is, it is a product of the time. Yeah, for sure. Well, to go from the thoughtful and meaningful to the absolutely, utterly geeky, um, <laughs> I want to talk about track ordering because <laughs> <laughs> because lately I think all of us know Rubber Soul from the UK version, which became the standard after the, its 1986 CD release and it's the version used for the remaster. And its opening two songs connect like this. But all of us, because we're from Canada or the U.S., grew up with a rubber soul where, as Petra said, the opening two songs connect like this. Now, this is because the U.S. version's capital release would lop off songs from the U.K. release and then put them on later releases, or they just create their own stuff, like Beatles 6 and Yesterday and Today. So the U.S. Rubber Soul puts I've Just Seen a Face and It's Only Love from the U.K. version of Help, and they cut out Drive My Car, Nowhere Man, and If I Needed Someone. But I have to ask, do you think with this album, maybe the U.S. version was better? Petra, I think you might have some feelings about this. (laughs) Well, uh... (laughs) just a guess actually interestingly enough my feelings changed over the course of preparing for this podcast because i used i mean yes obviously i love i've just seen a face and i think it pairs better with it's my favorite beatles sing-along song like if i'm yelling along in the car it's going to be to that song um and i think it pairs much better with norwegian wood than uh, drive my car does but the more that I think about it, I can't get behind a version of this album that doesn't have Drive My Car and... and Yeah, I like, kind of like you. I've kind of become a nerd to the UK version because I miss I've Just Seen a Face, but I love Nowhere Man and If I Needed Someone. That's another song we totally should have talked about. Uh, Nowhere Man is just so brilliant. Just such a brilliant song. Speaking anyway, of not being able I'm... to figure out your relationship, there's, there's John being unhappy in the suburbs with Cynthia. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. But, so, so, Rob, I mean, where, where are you at in the UK versus US? Dichotomy? Well, you know, I, this is bound to come up, not just with this album, but with, you know, a bunch of other. I managed to avoid it up till now, I guess. Looking back, you know, like I love the Beatles albums that I heard when I was a kid. And, you know, the songs to me were huge and, you know, they, they were life changing. But I don't I don't know why Capitol Records decided to, to do all that shit. Basically, I don't understand why they felt the need to change track listings. I suppose it was 
they wanted to cram all the singles on there because the Beatles was a band who they put out singles that were, you know, apart from albums for sort of an, an added a value add type of thing. But I wish Capitol Records had, especially with this album, frankly, because it was meant to be like an album album, an artistic statement that was the intent. It was the intention of the artist to have the the uh, the tracks be like this and for the album to flow like that and you know it just felt like the Beatles were ahead of the game in terms of that concept and the record industry was behind the game uh, and it, it, you know when I think about it now it kind of bristles a bit not to say that the US the Capitol release is a bad listen in any way it just it's just not the intention of the artist you know and what? and at this at this point I you know at this point thinking about it now you know, it would have been nice if Capital hadn't, you know, messed around with all that crap. <laughs> Aren't they trying to appeal to what they felt were was the American market's fondness for folk? Because I know that was right at the sort of in the in the midst of the folk revival in the early sixties. Yes. I think I read somewhere that they specifically put um, "I've Just Seen a Face" at the top of the album because they felt it had a less rock sound yeah. than "Drive My Car." Well, they're even behind the times in that because by nineteen. 1960- well, yeah. <laughs> In 1965, Dylan had gone electric. You know, you know. Let's uh, in 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 relation to a lot of what was happening in Britain, you know. And so I don't know. Just I, I don't want to denigrate or step on the uh, the memories I have of the of the Capital version. <laughs> but honestly, you know, I, I I wish that the the record companies had had figured out. Oh, things have changed. You know, we've got to let That's the true. artists lead here. And yet I feel somewhat contrarian because on the one hand, I take the point that, that, you know, they should have let the artist do it. But on the other hand, like there is, I think their track placement gets substantially better on Revolver and, and Sgt. Pepper and Ford. But I, I feel the, the same problem I had with this album is the same problem that Shannon Dohar talked about with having, uh, uh, with placing Dizzy Miss Lizzie after yesterday on Hell. Oh God, the it, track it, orderings on Help are jacked. That yeah. They, yeah. That is messed yeah. up. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I feel like, you know, I feel like, yeah, I take your point. I take their point that it's it's a whole, but Drive My Car just feels so dissonant with the rest of the album. No, nah, you're, just... <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, you're wrong. I'm sorry. I can't let you I can't let you get away with that. I don't think it feels dissonant with the rest of the album. I think it's not a good lead into Norwegian Wood. That's different. Yeah, but I, I don't know. I don't even agree with with that. I'm afraid. I, I, I think, I think <laughs> Rob I takes think, on all comers tonight. <laughs> I, I think I think Drive My Car is uh, it, it's meant to be a rocker. That's the way you open an album. Not to say that I've just seen a face is a bad song in any way because it's one of my favorites too. As uh, from Help, um, because you know I just I just love the acoustic guitar, the you know the folk uh, picking that he does. It's and it's one of the best songs that Paul McCartney ever wrote for sure. But um, Drive My Car is the opener to Rubber Soul. Boom. <laughs> Drive My Car is, yeah. So, like, I'm not arguing with you that, that Drive My Car is the, it's a great album opener. It, I, all I'm yeah. saying is it doesn't lead well into Norwegian Wood. Like, I would have put a different right. song after it. Fair enough. Eh, I'm, I'm, see, I see, for me, I, I think the rest of the Jenga in the album actually works. I think Norwegian Wood goes well in the, You Don't See Me and Nowhere Man. It, it, the rest of it works. It's just yeah. this one piece that, that just <laughs> seems so kind of, in, in my head canon, Drive My Car Forever starts yesterday and today, and <laughs> I just see a face It's going to be like soul. the Magnetic Field 69 love songs where everybody has their own running order. <laughs> 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 I was thinking about this. 
Uh, the reason That's that album's album. on my mind is that um, one of the things that I realized while I was singing along with I've Just Seen a Face in the car today is that it's almost the direct ancestor of the first or second track on 69 Love Songs, which is called Absolutely Cuckoo. Don't fall in love with me, and we only and it's the same kind of short, punchy, perfect, cascading internal rhyme, almost impossible to sing on one breath kind of song. They're, they're like, I don't know, I want to put them together now and see if they'll do a mashup because they're, they <laughs> seem so related to each other. Hmm. Wow. Okay. So we've got a we've got a we've got a future song recommendation, and we have Rob basically taking on all comers. <laughs> yeah, everybody should listen to Sixty Nine Love Songs and come up with your own track listing. Because much like the Beatles, not every track on that album is great, but as a whole, it is transcendent. Yes. <laughs> And that may be as good an answer as we can hope for. So that brings us to an end of our conversation on Rubber Soul. So if you have anything you'd like to say, and please, if you do, I'd love to hear it. Uh, you can send us an email at Beatles at GemGeekAreBud.com or visit our website at a AYearWithTheBeatles.Podbean.com. I am no closer to getting a decent URL for this website. And now, as we do every episode, we're going to have what we call extra credit homework, where we listen or watch some Beatles material that complements the album we're listening to. And this month, we've been watching and listening to this. George is ready. I'd like to do the title song from the first film we made. Remember that? The black and white one. <laughs> and it's called A Hard Day's Night. It's been a hard day's night And I've been working like a dog It's been a hard day's night I do be sleeping like a log But when I get on to you I find the things that you do Make me feel alright That's a clip from the Beatles concert at Shea Stadium in New York on August 15th, 1965, which was made into a documentary that aired in 1966 and 1967 in America, and that's now long out of print, but you can find it on video streaming sites. Bootlegs of the actual concert taken from the mixing board have also surfaced under the title The Beatles and the Great Concert at Shea. You look around and I'm sure you'll find it. You can't see me, but I'm doing that Beatles fan scream. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Now, I remember Ringo Starr once saying that the Beatles live shows were done in 30 minutes unless they didn't like the venue, in which case they'd play faster and be done in 25. <laughs> so, Rob, what was your impression of the concert? My impression was that it was a snapshot of, of a time in, in history that was just switching over. It's an historic show uh, for many reasons. For one, a show of this magnitude had never been put on before. Uh, they brought in a special PA system as if that would help. <laughs> it also was the sort of the dawn of the music industry becoming what it became uh, in the late 60s and into the 70s. Uh, and that was this huge, huge money-making machine. Before that, before Shea Stadium, companies making records, it was like a sideline. You know, they had they had their main business was you know in electronics and that type of stuff, and the record industry was like a sideline. As soon as Shea Stadium happened, uh, and they realized that there was this many teenagers that would come out to a show, uh, they realized, wow, that's a lot of uh, that's a lot of disposable income, you know, and and it it sort of it changed the industry. 
and it's only 12 songs. They only came on and did 12 songs and basically changed history. So it's a, it's amazing that way. What strikes me about it that is interesting to me is that how unlike a modern day arena rock concert is like there's absolutely they're, the Beatles are completely unprepared for. They just sort of their <laughs> band intros. Yeah, the band, the bands, the, the band's intros are nervous and yeah. bewildered at first. You know, they're just saying this is a song that's off of Beatles Six, uh, and then they realize that no one can really hear them, and so they just start taking. And the they piss. start messing with people. Yeah, then they start messing with people. It just there's no kind of attempt to try and. You watch a modern kind of arena rock concert uh, or stadium rock concert now. There's there's this attempt to to be able to engage the crowd or try and. Yeah, and they're just—they're just like, holy crap! What do we do? It has this—it's—it's—I it, it, was really kind of very surprised at how little kind of stage presence they actually. It was had. a show like no other. I mean, nobody else had done a show like this before. You know, the, the the only reason that they staged it this way is because they had that many, that much demand for the tickets. Right? They didn't account for the fact that there was no monitors. Uh, that the band, you know, they got they got these special amplifiers from Vox uh, that you know was like 100 watts or something. I, I can't remember what what the exact wattage was, but it was you know bigger than ever. But it still didn't make a dent in the screens. You know, was this, it the this, first stadium show? Yeah, like I I think it was the first of its kind on that magnitude. Uh, and so you know the the technology was not in place to support a show like that. Really, it was just a, it was just a spectacle. And they knew that they would sell the tickets, right? So, I mean, I think this is a part of the Beatles looking at each other and saying, like, why are we doing this? Not not at the time. I'm, I'm sure that they were, you know, as you say, Graham, they were bewildered and like, wow, what's what's even happening here? Now, Petra, I know I know you watched the documentary. So did. how did how did the how did that capture the insanity of the Well, experience? what I thought was very interesting about it, um, besides the fact that that Babies in Black is a good song. Who knew? Um, that was <laughs> yeah. like the biggest revelation on that recording. Oh my God. Like I used to play that song all the time because it's super easy. Yeah. And even a numb nuts like me who can't bar chords can play that song. But like, <laughs> it's, they, wow, that's like my favorite track on that, on that whole sequence. And I was very surprised about how like lively and, and juicy it was. But, um, no, what I, what struck me was the whole, the emotional journey that you can see them going through just over the course of that, like 40 minutes where they come on stage and you can see that they're like nervous, but kind of ready. And then they're completely blown away. They're, they're just, you can see there are a couple of shots of Paul's face where he's like robotically bouncing and bobbing, but just looks glazed. Like what the hell is yeah. happening to me? And then they kind of come through it and out the other side and start to realize that no one can hear them and it doesn't matter. And they start to vibe off the crowd and off each other. And that's when you get John messing with people, speaking gibberish, telling people he doesn't own Beatles six. Like we'd like to slip. Do a slow song now, and it's also off Beatles 6 or something. I don't really know what it's off. I haven't got it. <laughs> Playing the keyboard with his elbow, and it. Oh yeah. 
was this like incantatory experience. But they had to kind of go. It's a it's a very compact hero's journey, right, to the underworld and up again. Yeah. Just in this. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of homework, um, if anybody's interested, there's a really great essay by Tom Wolfe um, in the Candy Colored Tangerine Flake Streamline Baby um, called "The Fifth Beetle," which is about this guy Murray the K. He was a local disc jockey in New York, and he he was he called himself the Fifth Beetle. He kind of glommed onto them the minute they arrived at Kennedy. He was actually one of the announcers or opening acts at Shea Stadium, I think. And it very much captures that moment of how the music industry was responding to the Beatles and how people were realizing that, that teenagers were now this force, this cultural and economic force that they had not been yeah. before. Um, so, yeah, you know, really, if you want extra yeah. homework. <laughs> I remember, uh, what was it? The Ruddles, uh, Bill Murray's character. Bill Murray the K is based yeah. on Murray the Murray the K. That's right. Oh, gosh, yeah. I'd forgotten that. I haven't seen the Ruddles since I was 13. <laughs> oh yeah you gotta see that again you mentioned babies in black already petra even in spite of the screaming crowd what were the standout performances uh this is my chance to talk about i'm down uh <laughs> oh yeah i, I i'm down is, was title like, song. <laughs> yeah that there's that there's that is that old blues thing right there's a lot of there's a lot of sort of old blues lyrics that that have that in there it was a b-side of the help single and it's kind of a Little Richard type piece, you know? It's the performance of the song that is one of my favorite things of all time. It's It's John Lennon, as you mentioned, uh, Petra playing with his elbows and just generally saying, you know what? Nobody's listening. We can just do whatever we want up here. It doesn't matter. I mean, yeah, and at one so, point they're laughing so hard they mess up the vocals. <laughs> yeah, I just love that. So they're having such a good time together. Yeah. And, and, you know, in, in, and Paul's little twirl. And he's yeah. sort of laughing and he, he, he tilts his head back and he does this little twirl. It's one of my favorite moments in the history of the universe seeing that just the amount of fun that they were having on stage. Even though it was this hugely historic thing, there's, there must have been so much pressure on them to, you know, to, you know, to do a good job, but they still managed to have this, you know, ecstatically good time on stage together, you know. And in some ways it's kind of sad because this was right. toward the end, this is the, you know, toward the end of their time as a touring group. You know, I mean, it's and, that fleeting and, thing again that you get with the Beatles. Like this, there's yeah. so much right around now is when it all changes. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So, I, I, if you're asking me for my favorite moment, then that is surely the one. It's funny because because you guys stole the two I love. I also <laughs> like she's a woman. actually got a real verve to it. it the band stopped touring within 12 months of doing this and you've already answered this a little bit rob but is it easy to see why through, through here that they, that they did that they were tired of showbiz they wanted to be artists you can see the uh the interviews with them to say that you know we were actually becoming not good musicians because we were just you know we were just on a treadmill 
we were just going through the motions because nobody could hear us. So we couldn't hear ourselves to hear how we could play better as a band. So they, there are so many reasons why, why it happened. But I think the main one was, yeah, they were just tired of being performing chimpanzees. That, that was it. You know, they wanted to be artists. I find it fascinating how many of their song introductions are just shilling for what record this was on, including the crappy releases that Capitol made, like Beatles 6 and stuff. Thank you very much, everybody. Oh, We'd like to do a song off our LP album, Beatles 6, I think. Can you hear me? Hello? It's called Dizzy Miss Lizzie. It's fascinating to me that, you know, that's basically all they're sort of expected to say on stage. Here's the album that you want. This is the commodity of us that you want to buy. It is like... It's so completely different. Beatles for sale. Yep. Yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty much. <laughs> yeah. And that was changing, right? That, like, again, they, they didn't want to just have the album be this, this commodity, as you say, uh, as an extension of their stage show. They wanted it to be, you know, an artistic statement. Well, I think that's all the time we have. We'll be back in a little while for a discussion of the Beatles' seventh album from 1966, Revolver. That's next time on A Year with the Beatles. In the meantime, thank you, Rob Jones and Petra Mayer. Thank, thank you. you. This guys. is so fun. I'm Graham Burke. We'll see you next time. <laughs>